This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. The South African variant of the virus we've been talking about, the one that can fight off at least some of the effectiveness from the vaccines, has been found uh, elsewhere. Here, South Carolina in the U.S. specifically. Two people who don't live with each other, neither has traveled recently. So how worried should we be? The U.S. response to this pandemic has been less than stellar, to put it nicely. There could be a big reason for that, and that reason is budget rating from a critical health department. Cigarette smoking, making an unfortunate comeback in the pandemic, might be to blame for that. And what will happen to work at home when this pandemic ends? Maybe it continues. We'll explain. We start with the South African variant here in the U.S. Dr. Vinit Minashiri is an epidemiologist, virologist, microbiologist, University of Texas Medical Branch. So, Dr. The experts seem to be more concerned about this variant compared to the U.K. variant, which is widespread. Take us through this. Yeah, I mean, I think at least at this point for South, the South African variant and the Brazilian variants, we just don't have as much information. We don't have as much data. Um, my lab and other labs are still actually trying to get a hold of the actual viruses, um, these variants, to do some of the testing. And so some of the preliminary tests on the UK variant have been very positive in the sense that we've seen that vaccine sera and natural immunity sera does still protect. And so the level of protection is still very high with those viruses, those variants. Um, it's still an unknown for the South African variants. The going guess so far has been what, though? That, yes, there's still effectiveness there, but it's not as much. But then the counter-argument is, well, we're starting at a really high place. So if you're coming down from 95, maybe it's not going to be that bad. It's still just kind of a wait and see. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the studies that I've seen and things I've looked at, um, there is a diminishment in terms of the overall protection, but that's on a short order of magnitude. There is a change, but it's, it's not that much based on what we've seen. Um, and as high as these vaccines here, as, as, as robust as the immunity that's generated, um, it's not something that I'm yet worried about. Although we still need to do the test with the actual variants. We've only got um, piecemeal data at this point. But here's, I guess, the, the, the bigger problem. Uh, I was reading earlier this morning that compared to other countries, the ability that this country, the U.S., has to be able to even find these variants, we're like at almost the bottom of the list compared to some other industrialized countries. Is that right? And if so, why? Yeah, that is, that's relatively accurate. And part of that is just the nature of the healthcare system that we have in place, um, where we have um, public health entities and government entities that are interacting with often private companies and private health systems. And so there's not an integrated system that is for example, seen in Public Health England, where you have government labs and government-run healthcare um, that allows a little bit more synergy for these approaches. Um, we can identify these variants after sequencing, but that's often done in a, a lab like mine, academic or a government lab. But then this often trades back to um, patient samples that are coming from private industry or from Quest or private companies that are doing the testing. And so um, that interface hasn't been developed here yet, and part of the delay is in that interface. When we circle back to the vaccine issue, this kind of also paints us this idea that it is a race against time, right? You have to get the vaccines out there fast enough before there's a variant out there that either spreads and, you know, the vaccines are less effective or that mutates to the point where the vaccines won't be in the same ballpark at all. Right. And I think that gets to, you know, this is a 
unusual problem in that we just have such a large scale of this infection. Um, if we had fewer infections and fewer people getting infected, we'd have less variants. Um, the variants come up with every replication cycle, the virus is adding mutations. And sometimes those mutations are beneficial. Sometimes they're not beneficial. Um, and as you have more and more infections, the ones that are beneficial start to accumulate. What we don't know is which one of these many mutations that we're seeing are the most important. Some of them might not be important. They might just be carried along. And so part of the work that my lab and others around the country are doing, around the world really, um, are trying to figure out which mutations are the most important and then identify their impact. Dr. Vanit Manasri, epidemiologist, virologist, microbiologist, University of Texas Medical Branch. Have you heard of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Agency? I have not. Well, most of us haven't. It's within the Health and Human Services Department, and one of its main jobs is to prepare the country for a pandemic. But the agency's money has been diverted for years on things like furniture and salaries. Huh. Shira Stein, health policy reporter for Bloomberg News. Uh, Shira, what's been going on? The way that money works with the federal government is Congress appropriates. It says this is what you're supposed to use this money for, and then the federal government gets to spend it for that way. What's different in this case is they were moving it to unrelated things for parts of the government that the money was not intended for. So BARDA is within an office called the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. So they were using funds for that, for the Office of the General Counsel at HHS. Um, and the, what's really unique about this is appropriators didn't know the House Appropriations Chairwoman put out a statement, and she does not sound happy about it. I think I think we can expect to see her maybe calling a hearing to to talk and find out why this slush fund, or as they officials called it, the Bank of Barda, existed. So, how much money, and across which administrations, was this going on? Yeah, it was. They, the agency couldn't adequately count for over $500 million from both two, from 2007 to 2016, but this is a, as recently as fiscal year 2019, more than $25 million was improperly taken. So this ranged um, Bush, Obama, and Trump. So this is, not, this is not one presidency. This is not one head of these offices. This sounds like a more um, systemic problem within this agency. But but isn't there, I mean, the bureaucracy, as you know, in Washington is such that there's, there's always like one agency that looks over. I mean, there are countless agencies looking over everybody. Isn't there somebody that's supposed to be watching over these people? And what happened to that person or persons? I mean, the, the thing that's supposed to be looking over after all the money is Congress. Their job is to do oversight. Um, in this case, the... Inspector General at HHS is investigating the Office of the Special Counsel was the one who put out this report because it was from a whistleblower. Um, I, I think we'll expect to see a lot, a lot more on this issue. I mean, we, we've seen money get pulled for other things. So earlier this year, my colleagues and I reported about $6 billion um, being pulled from the Strategic National Stockpile to help fund Operation Warp Speed, uh, to help fund the development of the vaccines. But that money was n known to Congress, as far as we can tell. It was in a congressional report. So it was, it's, it's kind of a different situation, and it was somewhat related because BARDA is meant to help fund things like that. Yeah, do we know how much this actually set us back or in what ways this go around with this pandemic? Because you know, we had warp speed, and they offered up the money and had the, the companies do this. But it's, it's BARDA's job to be looking out for things and, and trying to develop vaccines. 
Yeah, it's really hard to tell. I mean, BARDA doesn't just develop vaccines, but they do testing. They do all, you know, drugs. They do all sorts of things. Obviously, we couldn't have prepared a drug for a virus we weren't aware of that didn't exist before 2019. But they do a lot of work to help develop things for things like this, for, for future pandemics, for, you know, chemical warfare. That's a, that's just another huge part of BARDA's authority is they develop things for chemical, radiological, biological, and nuclear threats. So it's just hard to tell how much of an impact this could have. But, you know, agencies only have so much money and they're always saying they need more. Shira Stein, health policy reporter, Bloomberg News. Smoking has been on the decline in the U.S. over the past few decades, but the pandemic might be changing all that. Instead of declining sales, the cigarette industry's unit sales flat last year. Compared to 2019, looks like people who were vaping switched back to regular cigarettes. With us is Dr. Pongis Galeon-Santos. He's director of the Tobacco Treatment Clinic at Johns Hopkins Bayview, spokesperson for the American Lung Association. So, doctor, we are at home more. We are stressed more. Uh, what else is at play? So it, there's all of those factors you discussed are, are, are at play. The, from my standpoint, uh, I run a tobacco treatment clinic here at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And many of my patients who made such great strides and success to quit smoking, uh, 2020 has been a horrible year for them. And of course, others where they've been relapsing and so forth. And one of the key features, uh, it, there's two things at play. One is what's the urge and drive towards combustible cigarettes? And then what keeps them smoking still? And it's that nicotine from a cigarette that will always have uh, kind of anxiolytic properties, right? It makes the people feel better, less stress, and so forth. And so my suspicion is that's why people continue to smoke if they've relapsed or have gotten uh, to combustible cigarettes for the first time. What's at play for actually driving, especially first-time users? That's kind of still an enigma that we're still trying to figure out. Um, you know, there's so many barriers and health promotion messages we've tried to put out so people don't be, uh, go towards a combustible cigarette. But it looks like 2020 is undoing a little bit of all the great efforts we have put forward. Do you think some of it might be that that for those who have really tried so hard and succeeded in not smoking for their health, do they sort of get this attitude that, you know, I did all of that so I can be healthier and now I'm not smoking, and now along comes this pandemic, and I can get really sick and maybe dies. So what the heck? I may as well just smoke again. No, and it's a great question. From my clinical experience, the majority of people who tend to relapse, right, those people that you just said, you're like, they've done all the great work, they've put cigarettes behind them, and now they're in the pandemic. So for my, for my clinical experience, for the patients I care for, there's a common thread here, right? So if you talk to people who smoke, they, you know, they'll, they'll identify some kind of extrinsic reasons like, hey, I, I like it with my coffee or when I'm eating and so forth. And they create these kind of habits and compulsions. But then there's also intrinsic reasons when I'm anxious, when I'm stressed or when I'm bored. I've always enjoyed a cigarette Right? they kind of describe it as if it's like their best friend comforting them when they're stressed or when they're anxious or when they're bored. And the pandemic has done that for all of us. Right. It has created anxiety, stress and boredom, right? We really can't go out of our homes. There's only so much Netflix we can stream. And so for all of my patients, when we discuss these relapse rates, a lot of it has to do with that. Earlier today, I had a patient four months, smoking was behind her. She finally quit smoking during this pandemic. And then one of her loved ones got COVID, they passed away. 
that bereavement and stress was too much for her to relapse back to smoking. So from my standpoint, those seem to be the three most consistent emotions people are telling me that is causing them to drive back to the cigarette, right? There is a craving that has become conditioned to them for smoking around anxiety, stress, and boredom. They've done it in the past, and this pandemic has really amplified those intrinsic emotions that have resulted in people going back to the cigarette. Dr. Pongis Galeon Santos, Professor of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine, Director of the Tobacco Treatment Clinic, Johns Hopkins Bayview, Spokesperson for the American Lung Association. Coming up after this short break, what if you could work from home permanently? Would you do it? The pandemic has many people all over the country and the world working at home, but the pandemic is going to end and offices will start to open back up. So will that end this whole work-at-home thing? Yeah, maybe not. Changes could be permanent. Jennifer Rossi-Long, Senior Director of the Westchester University's Career Development Center, she explained the future of work to KYW's Matt Leon. Assuming that it is a good fit given the job function, um, yes, I do think that there are going to be some changes that we're going to see. Um, we'll, we'll absolutely see a wealth of ideas and models that are tested over the next few months and years. So I think we're going to see a lot of data coming out of that. Um, but ultimately, um, I think that probably the most successful models are going to be able to provide options, right? They're going to allow their employees to determine, you know, the best fit just given their individual circumstances rather than trying to implement a one-size-fits-all model, right? We're, we're all remote or we're all back in person and business as usual. Um, I, I just think that, that that's where they're going to see the, the most success. I think that's what the workforce is asking for and looking for. Um, I think that feels a little overwhelming when you think about tackling that, um, but at the foundation, it's really, it's these two components, right? Is, is the work getting done and is the employee satisfied? Because both of those objectives have to be met. Um, so if the, if the organization's retaining their talent and those employees are happy and their goals and objectives are being met, um, that's all interdependent. And that's, I think, where they're going to see success with something like this. Do you think we will see more of a work from home do you, th do you think we will see more of the change in the idea of working from home on a more permanent basis or on the idea of a quote-unquote eight-hour work day? Yeah, I think... Um... And when I say eight-hour work day, I mean like nine to five. Like you're expected to be available nine to five. Or would it be more to your point of the work just gets done... We're not going to put a, you're working today, and as long as X, Y, and Z gets done, it's up to you on how it gets done. I think we're going to see a little bit of both. I mean, I think there's plenty of pre-pandemic data that points to the fact that, um, you know, um, one of the highest factors contributing to employee satisfaction and productivity is this autonomy, is this flexibility. Um, and in some studies that ranked even higher than salary. So that, that's not insignificant. Um, so I, I think that we'll see a little bit of both. I think that employers will have an easier time implementing a remote work policy than they do a flexible work policy just because of some of the other things that would need to be in place. But you know, as it relates to the, the remote work or flexible time, 
we now know on a very, very large scale that this isn't just an option when there are no other options, or it's not just an option that be that can be considered a luxury. Um, this is something that could actually be sustained and, and more widely utilized. Um, and, and really, some companies have already vowed to do that. I mean, you, you look at some of the, the tech companies, I, I feel like I'm seeing a, a lot from them, your Facebooks, Twitters, Googles, um, that have already said, we're going remote, or yeah, I think it was Facebook that said 50% of their workforce would be remote over the next like seven to 10 years. So they're looking at either doing that immediately or phasing that in. But even regionally, there are folks that are being notified that they're now permanently remote. And in some spaces, in some uh, cases that their office space is going up for sale. So it's not just happening in Silicon Valley or the large cities. It's, it's even happening regionally too. Do we, do you think we appreciate how big a change we're in the midst of? Because this is going to, you talk about like, you know, real estate and stuff like that. This could almost be like a, a game changer society wise, couldn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think the folks that are studying it understand um, where we are and what a game changer it could be. Um, uh, someone who's experiencing it right now um, might have an idea that there are changes coming or might see some of those changes slowly being implemented within their organizations. But um, I, like I said, we're, we're going to see so many different models that we're going to be testing and we're going to be studying and looking at really closely um, over the next few years. And, and I don't know that we could fully understand the impact or the possibility until we get further into it, particularly post pandemic when you could go back to what you considered normal, but should you go back to what you considered normal? Focusing on the idea of flexible scheduling, what do you see as the biggest upsides? I know for me, one of the things I never thought about it and it was till I was in the, the moment of, like being able to go to the dentist or being able to go for a wellness appointment at the doctor. And usually I would commute to the city. So my day would start at like basically seven and end at six thirty. between you throw in the commute and all. So I would have a little window. The dentist was open like every third Monday in the evening. And I had to, and all of a sudden you realized, no, nah, I can just take an hour, go to the dentist Anytime. I mean, stuff like that's really big. It seems kind of silly, but when you kind of pile all those little things on top of each other that now you can do more freely, that's really big. It is really big. I, I mean, I think that's a game changer. I, you know, I, I'll add that with the warning label that, you know, I'm a millennial and there's a lot of data out there on the millennial generation and, and they've really been asking for this, um, you know, wanting control over their day um, and, and thriving in a situation in a situation where they've now been afforded exactly what they wanted. Um, there was a I, there was a Gallup poll or um, some Gallup research that I, I liked how they put it. Um, they said that last March in one fell swoop, business conformed itself to the millennial way. And that's really exactly what what happened. Um, it's this concept of not only the flexible workday, but the flexibility of not calling it working from home, but working from anywhere, right? Um, giving someone the opportunity to work from 
a park bench, their favorite coffee shop, their home, anywhere, virtually anywhere, as long as the work is getting done. Um, this is this is the millennial way. And, um, you know, when you look at satisfaction and productivity levels, millennials are rising in both of those areas, but we're also seeing positive impacts on Gen X and the baby boomers, just not to the extent to which we're seeing it with millennials. And I think that's all comes back to your point because there's other things that that we can build into the day and and that we can integrate um, that that make things just that little bit easier and take that that little bit um, off of your plate in terms of the logistics of typically scheduling something like a, a dentist appointment. Um, I, I mean, I also think you know autonomy is empowering and there's a direct correlation there to employee satisfaction. So giving someone that autonomy um, is, is certainly helpful. A family in Spain was in mourning after learning an 85-year-old relative had died of COVID-19 and was buried. But news of her demise was a bit premature. She surprised her family when she returned to her care home nine days later. There was apparently a mix-up over names when the woman and others who tested positive for the virus, were transferred to another care home. A newspaper reports that she was fit and well when she came home, and her husband says he was overwhelmed. I can only imagine. He told the newspaper he couldn't believe it, and he had been crying. It was the woman's roommate at the other care home who had, unfortunately, actually passed away. We're on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.